Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd just like to add my, my welcome to the ones that have already been given to everyone who's visiting us. Um, it's going to be a slightly contrasting morning this morning. Uh, we are continuing a series, a teaching series on the book of Acts. And we started sometime around Easter. We taught from Acts 1 to 13, chunks of scripture a bit at a time. And since September, we've been instead going through the swathe of the back end of the book of Acts thematically. We've looked at various themes, including prayer and learning uh, from the Word of God. And I can't remember what it's all been, but it's been good. We looked at miracles last week. And uh, it's great to have some testimonies of healing uh, from last week. The subject this morning is a little bit different. And uh, it's been quite a noisy morning so far, hasn't it? Which is, which is okay. It's good, actually, because there's life around. Um, but actually, the subject I've got for this morning is suffering. <laughs> so um, it's, I thought I'd start with an object lesson. I've got a baseball bat, and if anyone wants to know. Um, it's a little bit more somber. I thought it would be good, before I get into preaching on the subject of suffering and what the New Testament says about it, actually, if we just took a moment to be quiet. And uh, undoubtedly, some people here are suffering quite a bit at the moment. There may be some historic suffering that you have walked through in your life, and it's left its imprint on you. Um, I'm sure that's the case for all of us. And I think um, it would be good. I believe it would be good. Just take a moment. I'll pray in a second that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind anything that he wants to deal with this morning. And uh, it's not about us all taking a moment to be sad. It's about bringing ourselves to God and inviting him to have his way and let his word do us good this morning. So Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. Father, thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit this morning to help us. We pray you would help us in this moment of quiet to bring all that we are before you, that which we celebrate, but that which we regret, and that which has been tragic and sorrowful in our lives too. Lord, we bring all that we are before you. Well, if there's anything that needs to come to mind for us this morning, even if it's a bit painful, would you help us, we pray, in this moment of quiet. And Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray that as we look at this subject together, what the early church experienced and received as a revelation from you. Lord, I pray that uh, any sense of guilt and blame would flee away. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there is a lot of suffering in the book of Acts. I probably wouldn't have chosen this theme to preach on uh, if it weren't for the fact that there's just loads of it. 
in the, we can't go through the second half of the book of Acts and not notice it. So even before we get to the second half, people are put in prison. In chapter 8, we have the next picture. I tried to find a picture of, um, there we go, picture of the first Christian martyr that's meant to, to portray Stephen being stoned. Uh, chapter 12 of the book of Acts, Peter's put in prison. Chapter 14, Paul is on the run from a murder plot and then stoned and nearly killed, not quite. Chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas suffer a broken relationship, which as many of us will know can be as painful as any physical injury. In chapter 18, they're taken to court. Chapter 19, subject to a riot, which I think is a fairly intimidating experience. Uh, Chapter 20, we find uh, uh, mature Christians weeping because they're separated from one another. They're being separated from one another, and they expect never to see each other again. As we go on through the story, we read of famine and shipwreck and beatings, unfair accusations of law-breaking. It's no surprise that in Acts 14 and verse 22 that Paul gives this instruction to Christians saying, we must go through many hardships. That was their experience. Now, our lives are different to theirs. We are not suffering quite the same things that they suffered, but we do suffer. Of course we do. It hurts to be rejected by those close to you. It hurts to be slandered. It hurts to lose friends and family. It hurts to have cancer. Now, it's often... This word suffering is often brought up in a phrase that goes like this, the problem of suffering. And uh, many of you will have heard the way that this problem of suffering has been put by people really as an argument against God. And the argument goes like this, if God is good and powerful, then he would have done away with suffering. If God is good, loving, and powerful, then he would have done away with suffering. And therefore, either he doesn't care, or he's not able to help. And therefore, the Christian God, who is loving and all-powerful, cannot be. That argument continues to be uh, spoken and put forward. Uh, And I guess one way or another, that argument, whether it's put as neatly and cleanly as that, or it just spills out in conversation as people experience life and feel deeply that God cannot love them or God cannot be powerful. Um, The Bible does not provide an answer that is clean-cut in the way of that argument against God. It doesn't give us a philosophical answer, a, 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 um, 
a solid sort of logical riposte that says, ah, oh, you think you're clever with your argument, but here's the argument that knocks yours down. It's not like that. And that's not because God is illogical or doesn't like things to add up. I mean, he made the world in an ordered way. His nature is that he is actually a lot cleverer than us and can argue any one of us you know, into the ground if he wanted to. So God's not intimidated by that logical argument, but he chooses not to respond to it in those simple, clean-cut terms. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God knows us well, and actually a neat, logical argument wouldn't really do, would it? It wouldn't really satisfy us if uh, we had some letter uh, that came to us from some great theologian that said, the reason you have cancer or the reason you lost a brother or sister or child or whatever, here you go, chunk, 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 three bullet points, there's your answer. It wouldn't really satisfy, would it? I think sometimes when we're in, if you're ever in those arguments with people who are struggling for faith or who wish to hold faith at arm's length, Sometimes you wish you had a neat answer so you could win the argument. But you know it's possible to win the argument and just lose. And there are some deeper things going on here. In fact, the person in the Bible who uh, most asks why about suffering is Job. Because he suffered a lot. Lost everything. Lost his possessions, his great wealth. Lost his family. Lost his health lost so, so much. And he asks again, why, why, what? There's a whole book of him grappling with this and his friends trying to give him answers. And and in the end, as many of you will know, the way God answers all of Job's questioning is not really with an answer at all. Instead, he comes back with a question and says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? We should make it fairly clear to us that God is happy to leave us without knowing all the reasons why we suffer. And that's his, his wisdom. But thankfully, that answer is not the end of the story. That's an Old Testament answer, which is true and a good thing. But in the New Testament, there is a new revelation that changes everything. Instead of providing a clever message, instead of simply reminding us of our limitations, God himself came into the world in Jesus Christ, and he himself suffered. Yeah. It is a complete game changer. Totally unexpected, distinct from what any other religion or philosophy had put forward. An answer, a response to the problem of suffering is that God joins us in our suffering And that changes everything. No longer do we have a distant God looking on, 
and deciding what to do about human pain that's over there somewhere. But God became human and shared in our pain. And you see, when we turn to the book of Acts, we find them thinking radically differently about pain and suffering, and their thinking is centered on Jesus. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, after the apostles have been uh, arrested and reprimanded, it says that they left the Sanhedrin, the legal court in which they'd been tried, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name being Jesus. They rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Now that is a completely different frame of reference, isn't it? I wonder how close we are to that frame of reference in our own thinking. Whether, for those of us, I guess pretty much all of us here are walking with Jesus, we know him, and yet I wonder whether our understanding of suffering is a little bit more Old Testament than new. That the way we see God's answer to suffering is we just kind of, we just put up with it and somehow trust God's bigger. Or whether there's something that we can step into of being like these apostles. There's a joy in suffering, but it's all about Jesus. It's not just that they were a bit tougher or a little bit more hyped up. They understood something about Jesus that changed everything. And that's what we need to look at together this morning. We're going to look at a little passage in Philippians chapter 3, so you might like to turn there. As you turn there, Philippians 3, and just a few verses, verses 8 to 10, as you turn there, just want to remind you who it is who is writing this. Because the man who wrote to the Philippians was the Apostle Paul. And if anyone suffered as a Christian, here's the man. When elsewhere he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth and was trying to explain himself to them, he wrote this, the Apostle Paul, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times flogged to within an inch of his life. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Can you imagine that? I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits. A few weeks ago when I was speaking about Paul making his second missionary journey from Galatia through the interior roads to Ephesus, that was a road that was dangerous because people didn't travel that road because of the bandits, especially at the Galatian end. The Roman army never really subdued Galatia. Full of Celts it was. But they were bandits. And Paul 
lived in this context, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So this is the man who then writes this in Philippians chapter 3 and from verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes here of Jesus. There's something about Jesus at the centre that changes everything. And it changes our understanding of pain. It changes our understanding of suffering. In the first couple of the verses that I read out, Paul, we'll have the next slide, please. Paul tells us that we gain righteousness by faith in Jesus. Righteousness is a, one of those words that it's, a, it's in the Bible. It's not used a lot in our contemporary culture and it needs unpacking. Righteousness simply means that we're judged to be all right. We're judged to be all right, and because of that, we are accepted. And Jesus, who was in very nature God, Jesus was righteous. He was all right. He was all right with God. You see, in the ancient world, if you had a good life, health and family and wealth and so on, if you had a good life, that was understood to be a reward, a sign of divine approval. If you lived a good life, if you had blessing, it was a sign that God loved you. You might not love other people, but he loved you. And you could see that from all that you owned and possessed. And so suffering was understood to be a sign of God's displeasure, that he didn't like you, that he did not find you to be all right, that you were not righteous. So going back to Job, this was their frame of reference. When Job was suffering, 
And trying to work it out, his friends said to him, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? God does not reject a blameless man. In other words, Job, whatever's going on here, you must have done something to make yourself unlikable to God. The reason that you're suffering is because you've screwed up somewhere and you're not all right. And God can see it and knows it, and he's at least allowing you to suffer, if not commissioning your suffering, because he doesn't like you. So what that means, the other way round, if you like, is if I suffer, it must be because I've done something wrong and God doesn't like me. That way of thinking lies deep in human nature. It lay also behind the Jews' rejection of the Christian message. Because they looked at Jesus and they saw how he suffered. And they concluded from his suffering that he couldn't have been a godly man. They quoted uh, the law of Moses where it says that uh, anyone who dies, uh, who hangs on a tree is cursed. That is, to suffer in that way, which crucifixion was a a kind of, uh, other ways to hang on a tree, but crucifixion was a kind of hanging on a tree. Anyone who suffered in that way must be cursed by God, disliked by God, judged by God, and not a good person. They couldn't get their heads around how a suffering man could be a model to us and one whose nature and character reveals what God is like. Anyone who suffers like that is not all right, morally or spiritually, in God's eyes. And it's true, Jesus did suffer a lot. This picture is um, a portrayal of Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. And I have to say, they did a good job of capturing how Jesus probably felt about that. (laughs) He looks pretty narked to me. (laughs) Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Actually, the betrayal had begun quite a while before, because as the Gospels tell us, Judas was in the habit of nicking their money from their common purse. He was already betraying them all long before this moment. Jesus was slandered. He was called the devil. And when you're God, and you're called the devil, I don't know how much more slanderous it's possible to be, really. And he suffered it. He suffered physical injury. We know of all the physical injury he suffered in the last week of his life, or the last year after his arrest, the last day of his life. He must have suffered physical injury before that, because he had a human body, Now, whether he's quite how he felt about this, we don't know. But uh, he was single and childless in a culture where those things were not only lonely, but dubious. (laughs) A man to be single raised all kinds of questions. And he suffered that too. Uh, There's the famously short verse, isn't there, in John's Gospel, which says that Jesus wept. 
at the loss, even, even though he knew that he had the power to raise him, his friend Lazarus back from the dead, he suffered grief at the loss. And there would have been many other friends and family that he lost to death. So Jesus suffered. And yet we know that Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was loved. He was accepted by his father in heaven. He was all right. He was righteous and yet he suffered. And it teaches us, Jesus' life teaches us, that the righteous do suffer. The righteous do suffer. The core message of the Christian faith is that Jesus' righteousness is contagious. See, people have this idea that things that are sacred are easily contaminated and their sacredness is done away with. That the world has a contaminating power that takes anything that is holy and sullies it and destroys it. That's the way people tend to think. That's how, again, how it was in the Old Testament. The temple was sacred, but you had to be really careful to keep it sacred. You could easily screw it up. Jesus' holiness, his rightness, his righteousness is, is strong and contagious. He was described as being the light of the world that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot understand or overcome it. The strength of his rightness is that it overtakes that which is unholy. He shares his righteousness with all who have faith in him. So Jesus is described as the light of the world, but then we, his followers, are described as being the light of the world too. Because he's shared his nature, his character rather, he shared his character with us. And it happens by faith. And this is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. He says, I'm found in him. I want, I made, not having a righteousness of my own, but one which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This rightness of Jesus is shared with us. This is the heart of the Christian message that by simply trusting in him, following him and receiving from him, he shares his rightness with us and we too are righteous. And that status is it's not questionable. Having been made right by him, that standing in here in Christ is fixed. The point is that when we suffer as Christians, we too are tempted to say, well, maybe God doesn't like me anymore. If I have cancer, maybe that's because God's just not with me so much. If God was with me, it wouldn't happen, would it? If only I had more of the present, if only I'd been a more devoted Christian and read my Bible more and prayed a bit more, this kind of thing, but just maybe it wouldn't have happened to me. Because if I was close to God, if God God loves me, if God's powerful, then my suffering maybe means that he's not with me anymore. This is one of the things that happens to Christians when when we're sick. When we're sick, when we're ill, I don't know if you know, I guess you know this from your own life. When we're sick, when we're ill, we very quickly begin to feel distant from God. Have you noticed that? And that's one of the reasons why the scriptures say that we should visit our brothers who are sick. 
brothers and sisters who are sick. It's why when someone's in hospital, hospital can feel to people like a horribly godless place. It's not the architecture or the staff. They're all very lovely. Well, the architecture might not be. The staff normally are. Um, but when you're there with, the, with all of these sick people around, it feels like, where's God in all of this? And that's what sickness is like. And when we, you know, when we go, and I'm just, it's so fun to do this. When you're healthy and you go into hospital and visit sick believers and renew in them the sense that God is with them and his presence is there and you help them not to feel distant from God anymore. But when we're sick, God feels distant. But the lesson of Jesus' life and what Paul's bringing forward is that we're made righteous by faith. It's not because of what we do. And that means we can't do anything to push God away. When we suffer, we need not doubt for one minute that God is still with us. There's an excellent hymn that asks a question in the verse and answers it in the chorus. If you're old enough, you'll know it. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded, firm, and deep in the Saviour's love. And what the early church understood from the life of Jesus, from their suffering Lord, who revealed to them what God's really like, who was loved by God in his suffering, was that when they suffered, they didn't have to worry that God was no longer with them. That that anchor was not being pulled out of the seabed when they faced suffering, but precisely the opposite, that they discovered in their suffering the certainty of God's love, that God is good and loves us even in our suffering. And for some of you this morning, that is a reminder, yeah, that's true, that's good, but for some of you, that actually is revelation this morning, because you know, your understanding of God has been that well, I walk with him and he blesses me. And when I'm not feeling blessed, where's my walk with God? The scripture says, the testimony of the early church says he's right with you. And that's why that, that poem, Footprints, you know the one I mean? Walking on the beach, there's only one set of footprints. Hardest time of my life. Jesus, why did you abandon me at the hardest time of my life? No, I was carrying you. Best-selling bit of Christian, whatever that is. Um, you know you can get it on bookmarks you can get it you know with pictures of kittens next to it you can you know you can get it engraved you can it's the best selling bit of Christian poetry and the, the reason is that it's true that at the point where we suffer, we're tempted to think that God's not with us, but he is. Anyway, the second thing is about Jesus' death. Paul writes about Jesus' death. Sufferings, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, 
Jesus didn't simply suffer at the hands of others. He chose to suffer. He didn't, it didn't just happen to him. He chose to suffer. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the God. In the garden, before he was arrested, he made a choice. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus choose suffering? Well, he knew his Bible. In Proverbs 20, it says... Blows and wounds cleanse away evil. And if you know that bit of the Bible, interesting little bit of the Bible. And uh, what it tells us, it's not saying that suffering is good. This suffering is never a good thing. Pain is never a good thing. But it can do good. It's not good in itself, but it can do good. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, this sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? The idea that suffering ever achieves anything good. But in fact, we do know it to be true in our culture too. I was looking around for Dan Kirk. I don't know if he's there. Or, Hi, Dan. Because Dan was telling me, uh, I'm sure you won't mind me saying you run an excellent time in the half marathon last weekend. But Dan was just saying to me yesterday, having run an excellent time in the half marathon, he's in physical pain. And actually, he was probably in pain uh, whilst training before that. The um, fitness people will say there's no gain without pain. It's true, actually. You have to have lots of little micro, um, you know, tears in your muscles before they grow bigger. You have to build up lactic acid that hurts before your body produces more myoglobin. You know, it's... Actually, it's true. It's true that to develop physically, you need to suffer pain. And we know that. And anyone who's made a decision to get fit knows that there is benefit the other side of pain. That is how it works. I was thinking this morning whilst um, I was brushing my teeth, I was thinking, I wonder who is it in the church here who has caused most pain to other people. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I reckon it must be a doctor. (laughs) And I thought of you, Rantimi. (laughs) Because I thought, of doctors, it's surgeons, isn't it? And here's this thing, that we fight suffering, but for the good of having cancer removed from our body, we'll let someone cut us open. You know, it depends on your medical condition, but it can be that the surgery is more painful than the medical problem. And the recovery from the surgery is often the most painful part. So the greatest pain that you experience has been inflicted by you on a surgeon, and you're glad they did. So we understand this, is the way that the world is, that... Suffering is never good, but good can come through suffering. Jesus also knew something else. He didn't only know the book of Proverbs. He knew the book of Isaiah as well. And he knew that it's possible that suffering can overflow not only to do you good, but to do other people good too. In Isaiah 53, there are some verses that are all about Jesus. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And this is what Paul's writing about in Philippians. Paul's saying, that's what I want to be part of. I, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. I want my suffering not only to be something that I find some good in somehow, somehow, some time, but for my suffering somehow to do other people good. That's the kind of suffering that I want to be part of. Paul wrote again to the Corinthians saying, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, summarize, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Isn't that incredible? Paul knew with confidence that his sufferings were bringing about life in other people. And I mean, sometimes the truth is that we don't always see that. We don't always see how our pain is helping anyone. Don't see how it's helping us. Don't see how it's helping anyone else at all. But sometimes we do, don't we? Um, many of you will know that one of the things that has had the greatest impression on me in terms of seeing Christian character was years ago and I was taken to a church in the northeast of England for a church, I went with Steve Thomas for a church meeting at which it was going to be announced by the pastor of the church that he and all of the other elders were resigning. And the reason was that the church was stuck, they were part of the problem uh, of these five elders, the pastor was, had founded the congregation and had, was employed full-time by the congregation. Uh, two of the other elders were employed part-time and their livelihood at that point depended on their jobs. And then th- there were two more. And the proposal was put by a team they'd invited to come in to advise them that they should all resign. And they did all resign. It, it was a bit more complicated than that. The pastor stood up and said, I'm resigning because I'm somehow getting in the way of the growth of this church. The two elders who were not employed stood up and said, that's right. The two who were employed part-time stood up and voiced their protest. And it was quite a tense meeting, to say the least. And uh, people in the congregation stood up and said, to the, said, there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. We want you as our pastor. Don't go. And he said, no, it's right that I should do this. And uh, there's a parking space in the car park with his initials next to it, so he could park because he had a disabled wife who'd actually just recently died just before all of this. So he had this parking space in the car park that was maintained out of respect and honor for him. And another one of the recommendations of the review was that they got a blowtorch and took his initials away. 
Um, anyway, I came away thinking, I have, I, I have seen something this evening of godly character in that man. That he was determined at a time of pain in his life to do what was right for other people. And, and everybody could see him suffering. His suffering did me good. In his suffering, I saw a plumb line of righteousness, which I'm grateful for. So sometimes we get to see the good that comes from suffering, and we get to see how our suffering, out of it somehow there's a benefit. We don't always get to see that, but I think we see it often enough to know that it is real and true. Last thing that Paul touches on is resurrection. Jesus Resurrection, the empty tomb. Paul says, Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this simply teaches us that there is life beyond suffering. Whatever suffering we experience, there is life beyond suffering. When we moved into the home in which we live, we had a two-year-old, no, two-week-old daughter, our first daughter. We moved into the house in a bit of a rush. The solicitor told us that there was an ongoing complaint with the neighbor next door. We were not having any sleep. We had nowhere to live. We had a two-week-old daughter. We said, oh, whatever, and we moved in. And we found that there was a guy in his 80s living next to us who was suffering dementia and not getting any psychiatric care and who believed that there was an IRA terrorist cell in our house tormenting him by chanting and that our burglar alarm was causing his profound constipation. (laughs) And his solution to that was to turn two TVs, two radios, a hi-fi on at full volume 20 hours a day Um, And the one that was next to the room where our Amber, who was then a few weeks old, was sleeping was the Iraq war was on at the time with a constant, and he had it on some news channel, so that next to where Amber was sleeping, there was the constant sound of bombs and death. And uh, he used to come round and shout at us. And when all of that wasn't really satisfying him, he'd walk, walk around his house slamming his doors and banging pots and pans. And we weren't getting much sleep anyway as parents of our first child, but this really obviously didn't help. Um, you know, I went around to help him with practical things, thinking, that's what you do, isn't it? That'll help. It didn't help. I mean, he had a tap he couldn't turn off because basically he got a little bit stuck and his hands were a bit arthritic and he couldn't turn it. And he came and knocked on our door and said, what have you done to my tap? Which I said, I didn't know, but maybe I can help. I wandered around and I turned the tap off. He said, oh, that's great, thanks. Came around the next day saying you've got magical powers and you're evil. That's how you could turn the tap off. He's trying to figure out, you know, in a little isolated, deluded world. And um, in the end, I came home one day uh, to find a couple of police cars outside the house and thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on. What had happened was he tried to come through our garden fence with an axe because Bev was gardening, saying, I'm coming to get you. And then they'd come around the front of the house with a machete Bever got into the house in time, and um, they arrested him, then unarrested him, because he's in his 80s and he needed medical care, not a prison cell, and 
Thankfully, by the grace of God, I had once, in the months that this went on, seen him going into his GP surgery. So I wrote a letter to his GP the next day saying, I think this guy's under your care. I think, I'd like to think there's a system by which you'd learn what's happened. But in case not, this is what's happened. And, uh, and he was sectioned that day and, uh, and helped. Anyway, in the middle of all of this, I was quite despairing. <laughs> And a wonderful woman of God called Barbara Jide said to me, you know, Steve, it won't last forever. And as she said those words, it was like the, the, a peace entered my soul. I, and I thought, that's right. I mean, I'd, al- I'd already figured that I'd outlive him. <laughs> So, so I knew she was right. I knew she was right. But when she said it, it came as the word of God to me. And it spoke of the reality that because of Jesus, not just because he's going to die one day, but because of Jesus, it's true for all of us that there is life beyond suffering. Our suffering will one day end. Revelation 21 says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, any specific suffering we face may end in this life. It may not end until the next life, or rather the continued life in heaven, well, in the new earth. Let's not get into all of that, but um, the suffering will end. There is life beyond suffering. Um, From time to time, I find myself meeting someone who is a Christian who's diagnosed with some condition which is likely to be terminal, terminal illness. And uh, what I find myself saying is, you know, the big picture is that this is a a win-or-win thing. Because there's two possible outcomes here. Either God will heal you, and that's a win, miracle, a story to tell, or you'll die. And then you'll have a life beyond suffering. Both of which are good outcomes. So we don't know quite how much suffering there is yet to walk through, But the end of the story is no more tears. There is life beyond suffering. and So the Bible doesn't give us a clear-cut, tidy, ah, here's your rational argument for why there's suffering and how it works and so on. What happened instead was that God sent Jesus, who is in very nature God, to suffer as a righteous person, And it transforms everything. It means that when we suffer, we don't have to doubt that God's with us. It means that God loves us, even in our suffering. Jesus chose to suffer. Suffering isn't good, but it can do good, not only to me, but to those around me. And Jesus' resurrection means that there's life beyond suffering. 
And that means that God remains powerful even in our suffering, even whilst we're waiting, even whilst we are in pain. God remains powerful. He is good and he is powerful. And our suffering does not negate those truths. We have found him to be good. We have found him to be powerful. When I was uh, fresher, I shared a room, well, a suite of rooms in college with a guy who was an atheist whose mother had died of cancer the year before. We had lots of conversations about all sorts of things. And one day he said to me, the thing about you Christians and suffering, is he said, I've worked it out. I've worked out what it is that you do with suffering and how you explain away the problem of evil in the world. He said, it's like this. You've already made a decision that God is good and nothing, no, nothing you ever see will shake that. And his point was, you don't really look at the suffering properly. But what he said was profoundly true. We've seen God. And we've seen him to be good. And we've seen him to be powerful. And the truth is that suffering does not undermine that. But our faith can remain secure as an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure. God is not indifferent, indifferent to our suffering. Jeremiah 6, there's this little phrase where he says of his people, her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Sometimes when we see pain and suffering, we recoil. We can't bear to look upon it. It sickens us. Sometimes disgusts us. And we turn away. And we do ignore suffering at times because of how much we can cope with. God is not limited in that way. God does not turn away from suffering because he can't cope with it. Our sickness and wounds are ever before him. And in fact, Jesus, who suffered, now seated on heaven's throne, when the Apostle John had a revelation of Jesus on heaven's throne, he saw what looked like a slaughtered lamb. Right at the centre of heaven is one who shows the signs of suffering. Our worship for all eternity will focus on the signs of suffering. A slaughtered lamb is the one we worship. And so God's not intimidated. And if some of us... Actually, the suffering that we've seen, the suffering that we've experienced has got us to a place perhaps of anger with God. And there's some deep feelings here. God's not intimidated by that either. He, he sees it anyway. Sometimes you think, I'm angry with God, and I need to kind of keep my anger from him in case he doesn't like me anymore. The thing he doesn't like is us keeping it from him. <laughs> We're going to break bread together. I suggest we have another moment's quiet. And Keith, can I hand over to you to break bread, please? Um, just take a moment... Inevitably, this subject brings up a lot. And what we don't need to do is simply to react emotionally, but to allow the Holy Spirit to guide our responses. It's not just about having deep feeling this morning. It's about having deep transformation.